In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, on the second Sunday after the Epiphany, we return for a moment to the Advent figure of John the Baptist at the beginning of Mark's Gospel. If you'll recall, John is the last of the Old Covenant prophets, calling the people to repent and to prepare for the coming of the Lord. In Epiphany, we return to the story of John the Baptist, not so much to focus on his Advent exhortation, but rather than to focus on what comes next, and that is his baptism of our Lord. So we start to see this kind of chronological focus in our readings over the last few weeks of Jesus' revelation. That is, at Christmas he was revealed as a baby, at Epiphany he was revealed as a two-year-old, at the first Sunday after Epiphany he was revealed as a 12-year-old in the temple, and then here on the second Sunday after Epiphany, Jesus is revealed as an adult in his baptism for all to see. So remember then that John the Baptist tells us that the one who we are waiting for is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. John says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In other words, John says that the one who is coming after him will be the dispenser of the Spirit. There was a long-standing expectation within Jewish religious thought at the time that when God, God finally acted to restore his people, he would then give the gift of his spirit. And John tells us explicitly that Jesus will be the one who does this. He will give the spirit. He will bring a far greater baptism when he baptizes you with the spirit and with fire. So this is the religious context at the time. So then given this religious context, we can imagine then John's surprise and his disbelief, as Matthew accounts for, when Jesus approaches him and says, baptize me. John probably is thinking, me baptize you? I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you. I'm the one that needs this spirit and fire baptism that I've been telling the whole world about. Jesus' baptism is significantly his first act of public ministry in Mark's Gospel. And I, like John, have to say that there's good reason to be confused about it. I seem to ask this question to myself every year on the second Sunday after Epiphany as I prepare the sermon. Why does Jesus need to be baptized with a baptism of water for repentance? Jesus was without sin. But he clearly, however, sees the divine need to complete this task. But the only explicit reasoning he gives comes in Matthew's gospel. And that is simply to say to John, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. But he doesn't really explain just what that means. It seems to me, and this is the same answer that I return to every year, is that the incarnation which we have been focusing on in these recent weeks, what we have been celebrating, is the best interpretive lens for this. So at Christmas, we see that in the Incarnation, Jesus took to himself our human nature in order to identify and associate himself with sinners. And surprise, surprise, this is exactly what we see at Jesus' baptism. So Jesus inaugurates his public ministry by standing side by side with sinners, submitting to a ritual for sinners in the waters of the Jordan River. In this, Jesus displays solidarity with those who are in the water, solidarity with those who had listened and responded to John's Advent exhortation to repent, 
So all those who had listened to John's call and were baptized by him had openly proclaimed their desire to leave their sin behind, to start anew with the work that God was doing. So Jesus in the Jordan identifies and associates with such people. And in so doing, we are given a foreshadowing of what will come in his ministry as he will stand in the place and bear the weight of humanity's sin and weakness on his shoulders on the cross. It was the late Pope Benedict who spoke about this foreshadowing of the cross, which we see in Jesus' baptism. Recall that Jesus later on in Mark 10 will actually refer to his cross explicitly as a baptism, as he's having that conversation with James and John, the sons of Zebedee in Mark 10. This is where they are asking for the honorable seats in glory. Jesus responds, he says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? So going under the baptismal waters is a symbol of death. There is a real death that occurs in every baptism. And both here in the Jordan River, as well as on Calvary's tree, in the beginning and end of his ministry, Jesus steps in the place of sinners and he dies that death. And then at the end of Jesus' ministry, we see yet another baptism with the mandate of the Great Commission, commanding them to go to all nations, make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So the beginning of Jesus' ministry here, the climax of his ministry at the cross, and then the end of his menis- and then at the end of his ministry with the Great Commission, we see baptism. This is because baptism is not some secondary add-on. It's not a nice cultural or ritual thing that Christians do. Rather, it's essential to the mission of the church. It's at the very center of what we do. And it's why the baptismal font is always front and center when you enter into the church. The point being that it is supposed to be in the way. You're supposed to be confronted with it every time you enter into the church. It's the first thing you experience because it was the means through which you first experienced grace. And then both in Jesus' baptism and in his cross, we see something else similar happening. There is a tearing. So at the cross, it is the tearing of the curtain of the temple, which communicated the immediate access now available to the presence of God. In like manner, too, at Jesus' baptism, the heavens are torn, and the presence of God is made manifest in a new way. This is the other significant emphasis in Jesus' baptism in the Gospels, the revelation of God which comes after it. And this is why we read this during Epiphany. The heavens are torn open, the Spirit descends, and in all of this we witness the revelation of the Holy Trinity. As the Spirit descends on the Son, the heavens are open, and the Father says to the Son, You are my beloved, with you I am well pleased. Nowhere else in the Gospels is the Holy Trinity manifested in such a way. In Jesus' baptism, we see then that his identity is revealed. And in our baptism, we too receive that same identity. Because in our baptism, we are grafted into Christ's body. In our our baptism, we find what is present in Jesus's. The curtain is pulled back. The heavens are torn. 
the Spirit of God descends and rests on you, and the Father says to you, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Though it is significant to note that the pleasure that the Father takes in the Son comes after he has said yes to his baptism, and in so doing already said yes to the cross, Jesus has chosen through his baptism to embark on a particular road, a road of obedience which is laid before him, and it's in this obedience that the Father delights. And in our baptism, the Father is pleased with us after we have promised to, as the prayer book says, renounce the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to walk in God's will and commandments all the days of our life. So here's the important point. The point is that in our baptism, not only do we receive the same identity that Jesus received, but we also receive the same vocation. And that's a vocation to the cross, obedience to the cross. Jesus submitted to John's baptism, but yet another baptism awaited him. Again, the baptism of the cross. And in the same way, after we are baptized, another baptism awaits us, and we must remain obedient to that to that baptism of being immersed not in water, but rather being immersed in the sufferings of the cross as we pick up our cross and follow Christ and thus have a share in his passion. So to reiterate, our Lord's identity is revealed but then confirmed in his vocational obedience. His obedience to that which he is called to is the evidence of his identity, of his sonship, and that the Spirit has descended upon him and delights in him. We too demonstrate our sonship through obedience. The evidence of our filling of the Spirit in baptism is a change, a change of behavior, a new path marked by devotion to the Father, and a willingness to have our own share in the cross, no matter what that looks like. So on this day, as we reflect on the baptism of our Lord, may we call to mind and think about our own baptism, who we are as children of God and recipients of the Spirit. May we also then reflect not only on our identity, but also on our vocation and the promises that we made at our baptism to follow Jesus as our Savior and Lord and to obediently keep his holy will and commandments and to walk in the same all the days of our life. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.